Welcome to Rejuvenating with Dr. Ron Kaiser. This is a podcast designed to help you lead your life enthusiastically today, tomorrow, and every other day. I am your host, Ron Kaiser, positive health psychologist, also a keynote and TEDx speaker, and author of the triple award-winning book, Rejuvenating the Art and Science of Growing Older with Enthusiasm. As listeners to the podcast know, our goal here is to present you with speakers, all kinds of individuals who lead their lives enthusiastically and have different perspectives on helping us to become the best versions of ourselves. As you know, my website is the Mental Health Gym. Our goal is to make ourselves move forward in society with the best, the very best type of person that we can be. My guest today is Ari Wallach. Ari is a futurist. He's a viral TEDx speaker, and he's a futurist to the United Nations, Fortune 500 companies, and major non-governmental organizations. His new book is Long Path, Becoming the Great Ancestors Our Future Needs. Really interested to hear about that. Ari's Long Path perspective is a simple but profound mindset shift to counter what he calls short-term ter- short-termism. Uh, kind of a new word to me, and want to hear what that is all about. He's the founder and executive director of Long Path Labs, and he's developed a research-backed program that cultivates the active deployment of thinking and behaviors that will positively impact our futures as well as generations that follow. Ari is also an adjunct associate professor at Columbia University School of International and Public Affairs, where he's lectured on innovation, artificial intelligence, and the futures of public policy. His TED TED Talk on the Long Path Mindset has been viewed by 2.7 million people. And uh, I know mine has been viewed like almost 200,000 times. I thought I was doing good, but I am very embarrassed, but highly honored to have you with us. Ari, welcome to Rejuvenating with Dr. Ron Kaiser. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, it's a real pleasure. Uh, We did have a few computer glitches going on. So if, if my intro wasn't as smooth, as some and as you deserve, I apologize, but really want to find out lots about what you have to offer. So let me, first of all, not assume that anybody else out there knows more about what a futurist is than I do, and I know nothing. So what is a futurist? You know, it's funny, I get asked this question all the time. Look, I I don't have a crystal ball and I don't predict the future, right? So what, what, what professional futurists do is mostly we help organizations or governments think about the future and then act accordingly. So it's, it's not about kind of just guessing and saying, oh, well, you know, this could happen or that could happen. The, the kind of science of being a futurist comes out of, in many ways, actually, in the U.S., it comes out of a lot of kind of long-term planning that was originally done actually by the U.S. Air Force in the 1950s. And this was happening at the RAND Corporation, which is a spin-out of the U.S. Air Force uh, in Santa Monica, 
people like me, though, who kind of work full time doing this, sometimes they work inside of very large companies like uh, Ford Motor Company has a, has a full time futurist or, or Intel, the computer company. And again, our job is not to, to predict anything, but it's basically to be constantly scanning what is happening out in the world, looking at megatrends. And you'll, you'll see this it comes up in my book a few times. And these megatrends are these big things that are happening. It's not what happened you know, this week or even this month, but things that are kind of decades in the making, if you will. And we look at those and then we say, okay, when these megatrends kind of come together, be it increasing urbanization or the increase of remote work and digitization, what are the ramifications of those over the long term? So when we work with these large organizations, really what we're doing is we're saying there are three or four possible futures, and this will come up a few times in our conversation, this idea of there isn't one singular future, but futures. So those of us who do this work full-time never talk about the future of anything. We're always talking about it in the, in the plural. And that, that's what we do. And so it's a lot of kind of, you can think of it as long-term organizational strategy. Now, we might do it with governments. We might, I, I do United Nations. I've done it with big car companies. Really, we're saying over the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years, these are things that might happen. And this is how they're going to impact your work or your organization. The, the slight difference is that's what I was doing for a very long time. And then I realized about five years ago that I, I love the kind of futuring work that I was doing. But I, I stepped back and I said, okay, I'm constantly helping large organizations think about what might happen and how they should prepare. Now I wanted to add another layer onto that. This really started in kind of 2016. And this other layer was, these are the four or five things that might happen with some high level of probability. Now the next layer is, what do we actually want to see happen? What is the future that we actually want? And it's not about being kind of Pollyannish and saying, well, pie in the sky, I want, you know, some amazing thing to happen, you know, free money, all this crazy stuff. It's not about that. It's about really saying, what is this kind of examined desired future we want for an organization? Or in my book, it's what do we want for ourselves, for our families, for our country and for the world? And then importantly, how do we actually make that happen? But again, it's not about being uh, Pollyannish or kind of silly about it. It's being kind of very methodical and scientific and how we actually figure out what it is that we want to see happen over the long term and how do we get there. So that's 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 kind of what a futurist does. I mean, this is how we spend our days is thinking about the long term, how we got there and, and what might happen. Boy, that is so interesting, Aria. I frequently tell my guests that I usually have at least one really dumb question that I ask uh, per interview. I have a feeling that... Uh, there's going to be a lot of them. No, no such thing. One of which is, are futurists, do they have a particular point of view? In other words, when we talk about what do we want to have happen, is it what a particular company wants to have happen and another one wants something else? Or is there uh, an effort to kind of get a... Uh, a, a real perspective on on what's a good future. So, so Ron, it, it's amazing because you start off by saying, well, I'm going to ask a question that's not a very, that is the most important question. That is the biggest question. And it is the most serious question you should be asking right now. So right. You, you, you start off saying that's going to be silly. It, 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 that is the question, right? Because 
More often than not, if you're kind of a professional working futurist, you're working for a client, right? You're working for the UN or the White House or a big company, and you hit the nail on the head. The issue becomes who's actually paying you. And yes, in theory, you are only kind of developing futures that these organizations want to see kind of happen, right? You're kind of, you're working with them. But what you rarely do is deliver kind of information or scenarios, which are really kind of in-depth stories about what might happen. You're rarely giving them ones that are kind of bad and not good or where they go out of business, right? Because that's who's paying you. Now, I'm not saying futures are unethical, but we kind of naturally want to kind of please and push those that we're working with, but we're never going to do anything kind of out of bounds. And so I'll give you an example, though, of where the state of futuring is and how we are doing that. So several years ago, I was working with one of the largest automobile companies on the planet. And what they said to me was in my organization, they go, look, right now we produce millions of cars a year. How do we get to a point where we go from 3 million cars a year to 6 million cars a year? We want to be the biggest car company on the planet, right? And they were like number two at the time. And so what they wanted were kind of different scenarios, different visions of the future where they could sell twice as many cars, right? And that meant to them that the obvious thing was sell more cars in China or sell more cars in Europe or Africa, right? That was was it. What, What we did, and by the way, this is what a lot of futures do now is we kind of pushed back on that and said, okay, that's one future where you are now selling 6 million cars a year, right? You're, you're doubling how many cars you're making, but is that the actual business that you are in, right? In other words, are you in the car business? Are you, or, or are you in the mobility business? Are you in the business of getting people and things from point A to point B? Because if that's really your business, maybe it's not just about selling cars, Maybe it might be cars, it could be trains, it could be monorails, it could be bicycles. Let's broaden what it means to get things from point A to point B. And going through that exercise, this took several weeks and actually months of traveling around the world. We got these folks at this very large, quote unquote, car company to realize they're not a car company. The car is just the platform they've been using for several decades to move people and goods from point A to point B. They're really in the transportation business. And so this unnamed company, which I, which I won't name, you're going to start seeing them actually still, still make cars, but they realize their future, the desired future over the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years is to actually stop making cars and start making a, a plethora of different kind of platforms. It could be dirigibles, it could be drones, whatever it is to help goods and people move from point A to point B. So it's a great question because sometimes you have to kind of push and say, well, what is, is a desired feature that you say you want really the desired feature you want? Because the role of the futurist is to, is, to, is to be provocative and to push folks, however you want to define folks, to go beyond what they think they actually want and expand the horizon so that they can kind of see a long-term success. Boy, that, that was, wasn't expecting that. that that's amazing. Well, I guess uh, since you have uh, worked for clients like the UN and so on, uh, you've talked about like car companies. Uh, Are there futurists who are working on things that are like peace in the world or climate change or something like that? 
Well, so 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 the, the example I gave at the car company was, was what I was doing about five or six years ago before I launched Long Path Labs, which is fully focused on that very question, right? We are looking at what does it mean and how do we get homo sapiens writ large, global planetary society to do the things that need to happen to ensure the long-term flourishing of our species. Now, that sounds really way out there, but the way I think about it and the folks that I work with at Long Path Labs is it's not necessarily about the next 5, 10, 15, even 50 years. It's really about what is the next 500, 1,000, even 1,500 years, 2,000 years look like, right? If, if you think about it, Ron, we, we've all seen movies with the gladiators, right? The, the kind of the Roman Colosseum. And, you know, we, we see these all the time. I, I grew up with them. You probably did too. So go, if we if we go backwards, you know, and we think about that time in Rome, it seems like, man, not that, not that long ago because we see movies and we see it kind of visualized, right? If we take the same amount of years going backwards to the Colosseum in Rome with gladiators, but flip it and flip it forward, we're actually in the in the year roughly in the year 4000 4000 AD which seems way out there and very very far out but it didn't seem so far out when we went backwards and looked at the Colosseum so what what we do at long path and in many ways what the book is addressing is how do we start to shift our mindset from one that is thinking just about today tomorrow next week next month even next year and start thinking in these very long term time frames Specifically, we think about it because we think about what does it mean to actually think about humans right now on this planet, climate change, peace, all these big kind of issues that we need to grapple with if we want to kind of flourish and survive as a species over, over the next several thousand years. What do we have to do right now to get there? So that's the book is really about helping people think about this moment in time very specifically and what are the things that they can start doing at, at, a, at a mental, at a mind, psychological level, so they can create kind of behaviors and actions that actually help us get to that far out year 4,000. And not in a science fiction Star Trek way, although I love Star Trek and grew up on it, but really to kind of recognize that where we are as a species is really, really just kind of the beginning. We seem, we seem very old and we all seem very wise, but really if we, if we look at Homo sapiens and we kind of step back, we realize we're really on kind of chapter one of a probably 15 chapter book of who we are. And so the question is, what do we have to start doing now to get us through this moment of, of climate change and inequality and hyperpolarization? These are really kind of bottleneck issues that if we don't kind of get through them, we might not see ourselves in that year 4,000 in the way that we want to be. Well, if my listeners and I have uh, been, been listening for these few minutes and we're sold on the idea. Is there something that I can do personally or, uh, you know, is, is it's something that's going to ultimately happen, but I'm just too, you know, too small a cog in the wheel. Well, so, so, so that, that, yes, that's great questions, right? So that's the question. That's why I wrote the book, right? Because when I kind of surveyed the landscape about books that talk about the future, it always was this kind of, you know, we have to do these amazingly large, big things, and we have to pass laws and change everything. And and and, and the problem with that, while, while some of that is true, it makes those of us, myself included, who feel kind of like small and kind of cogs in this much larger machine, who kind of say, well, 
Okay, so what does that mean? That means maybe I should vote for this candidate or I should kind of consume this, you know, should buy an electric car and vote for that candidate. And then that's it. That, that's how you shape the future, right? Well, so the problem with that is it, it kind of takes control out of our hands. We no longer feel like agents trying to change the world. We feel like we just have a small part to play in this big grand scheme of things. The reality is that's not actually true because while voting and consuming are one way we can kind of shift culture, the other way we can shift culture, and this is very much the kind of the, the essence of the book, is by our behaviors and actions day to day with those around us that we connect with. So do, do, you, know, do, you, do you remember the kind of the, the architect and designer Buckminster Fuller? Does that name ring a bell? Geodesic Dome. The geodesic Dome. So Buckminster Fuller, you're, you know, and probably most of your listeners know, this was an amazing uh, man who, who's, who's since passed on. So Buckminster Fuller was asked during World War II, actually, by the U.S. Navy to help them with a very big problem. Their ships were getting larger and larger. And the issue was that the hydraulics that were necessary to turn these massive rudders were now getting so big that they couldn't fit them in the ships. They were kind of stuck. They needed bigger ships to move cargo and troops and whatnot, but they, they couldn't actually make a rudder big enough to turn the ship. So he came up with this idea called the trim tab. And some of the you who are listening who might be pilots might know the trim tab, or if you're, if you're sailors and captains, you know this. The trim tab is actually, you can have like a six-foot rudder on the back of a very large ship. The trim tab is like a four-inch piece of metal at the end of that rudder. And what it does is instead of having massive hydraulics that will shift the rudder with brute force, all you need to do, and this is what Buckminster Fuller came up with, was actually just turn that small four-inch piece of metal, that, that trim tab at the end of the rudder, into the opposite direction that you wanted to go into, into the kind of into the pressure stream, if you will. And what he found was when you did that, that small four-inch piece of metal, that trim tab, would actually act as a counterforce and swing the rudder all the way around. So what, what, what that metaphor of the trim tab is, even very small actions can have great effects. So that, that's the acronym SAGE, S-A-G-E, small actions, great effects. And he believed that all of us in our very small actions, when multiplied at scale, would actually make a massive dramatic change. He believed in the trim tab so much. This, this theory of change at the individual micro level, the way... Ari and Ron interact with those around us, our kind of behaviors and our attitudes were, was so important that actually on his tombstone, where, you know, it says Buckminster Fuller and his, you know, the year of his birth and death, right above it, it says, call me trim tab. Because he felt that everything an individual did in their life, and this comes from, you know, this is chaos theory and complexity theory, you know, would, would actually alter general systems. So what ends up happening is, Yes, you should vote a certain way and consume a certain way, but it's actually in your, your behaviors and your actions, how you are to other human beings, as we call these, in, the, in, the, in academia, we call these our kind of pro-social ways of being, specifically around empathy, exhibiting and exerting empathy with primarily starting with yourself, and this is kind of one of the pillars of long path, both with what I call transgenerational empathy, so empathy with the past, the present yourself, then allows you to have empathy with the future and start taking different actions. So even if you feel like kind of a, a small kind of cog in a much larger machine, the fact of the matter is when all of those cogs start working together and kind of collectively trim tabbing 
towards a desired feature, you actually start to see that action manifest. And I know, again, you know, this can sound kind of new agey or woo-woo, but, but the fact of the matter is we see this in organizations all the time. We see when leaders say, okay, we're going to start rowing in this direction, even if it's, a, if it's a thousand small kind of oars, but they're all in the same direction, you can get to speed very, very quickly. So it's a great question. And really the book was written to help people see and kind of have this mindset shift from a kind of short term, I can't do anything. What do my actions matter to a much kind of bigger time frame that my small actions actually matter a lot? This is so fascinating. Uh, but do you have some examples of the, the actions, for example? I mean, uh, I'm assuming that uh, this is kind of the difference between short-termism and futurism. That, yeah. That, but, so short, so uh, you, you know this. I mean, so, so, so Marty Seligman, you know, positive psychology, you know, one of the things he talks a lot about is he talks about the way, you know, I say homo sapiens, but he he says homo prospectus, right? What that means is he says, what separates humans out from other mammals is two things. One, our ability to cooperate. And that's obviously in many ways through language. But why do we cooperate? We cooperate because A, we, we want to get something done. And this is the other thing that separates uh, homo sapiens out from other mammals is we we, pros, we prospect. We think about the future differently. We, we come up with different scenarios and stories. And so when we think about, you know, the, the kind of the classic example, those of us who, are, who think about short-termism versus kind of long-termism in this way, is we think about civil rights. We think about Gandhi. We think about nonviolent direct action. We think about what does it mean when people decide they want to take what is kind of the the official future, the narrative of how things are going to go? Which, if we think about civil rights, it's the it's the it's the violent separation of people purely based on on race, but actually want to go in a different direction. So it becomes the bus boycott. It becomes sit-ins. It becomes different ways of envisioning a different tomorrow. Now, obviously, that's around race. This also happens in a number of organizations when we kind of step back and we look at how folks change large organizations, it's when they all decide to kind of go in a different direction. So, you know, we're working with the United Nations right now, and or I have been working with the United Nations, and when it comes even to global refugees, they'll think about it kind of, we'll think about it kind of in an emergency direction. Well, there's millions of refugees, let's say, coming from Syria or coming into the Horn of Africa. The Another way, the way we start to kind of think about it is, okay, we can think about it as purely like we have to receive these, these people who are forced to flee from their homes, which is terrible. The, the, the way we kind of start to, to trim tab that in other, in, is to stop seeing them purely as people who are going to be kind of quote unquote burdens on the system and actually start looking at refugees as, as resources for their, their host, or, uh, host organizations and actually see them as fully fledged human beings who want to contribute and be part of the society that they're going into. So again, those small kind of mindset shifts start to have big long-term policy uh, impacts. That's, that's great. I, uh, as you were talking, I mean, uh, two thoughts occurred. One is just very inspirational to think in, uh, in that way. But also, you know, I, I think of all the times I hear uh, whether we're talking about Social Security running out of money, uh, whether we're talking about the the oceans rising or stuff like that. Not uncommon for me to hear somebody say, 
Well, I'm glad I won't be around to see yep. that. You're now you're talking about something that's way further off in the distance. Uh, do you find that there is uh, widespread acceptance of this kind of thinking, or there roadblocks to it, or cynicism about it? I, I you know, it it sounds you know really great in theory if it works in practice. Are you finding that you, you're getting converts to it? Yeah, we are. We're selling books and people are coming to kind of the conversations that we're having. But so so you you raise a really great question, which is around kind of roadblocks. So, and, and I think, you know, and I saw you had different guests kind of on, on this subject, so I won't go into it too much. But one of the things that leads to folks not necessarily thinking about the long, long term, which is, you know, 50 to 100, 150 years from now, is they have to confront one very obvious roadblock, which is they will no longer be around and they will be dead. And it turns out, and this goes back to Ernest Becker's Pulitzer Prize winning book, The Denial of Death in 1972, which was that humans are the only kind of, as far as we know, the only kind of animal that we know that at a very early age realizes at one point they will no longer exist, right? Other animals are kind of like in the present. They're living from, you know, some will plan for the future. They'll bury nuts here or there and they'll do certain things. We very early on realize because we see it around us that at some point we're going to die. And so most of us probably, at least in, in, in America right now, in our culture, probably 90, 95% of people are what we call death anxious. Anytime you talk about death, they shut down and if anything, they become more short-term in how they react, right? They go out and they buy that car or they, they do this thing or that because life is short, you know, you only live once. And what we find is if we can move folks from what we call death anxious to death aware, which means, look, at some point, I my biological entity, the, you know, for me, Ari Wallach, the, the hardware, the, the molecules that make up my body, one day will no longer exist. And though most people will freak out, they become death anxious. One way to make people death aware and be okay with their own mortality is by recognizing that what, what moves and lives beyond them is actually their daily actions. They're kind of what we call emotional heirlooms, their psychological heirlooms. How they treat and how they are to other people is actually what outlives them. And the great thing about that is if you can shift folks into that way of thinking and feeling, they are more likely to take actions on behalf of future generations because they now see themselves connected to future generations. It's only when you have this disconnect, what I, what I call in the book a lifespan bias. The bias is the only thing I think about is from Ari's birth to Ari's death. That's my bias. But if you start to actually recognize that these things are actually overlapping, my life, my children's life, my, you know, hopefully one day grandchildren's life, we're all, we're all overlapping. We're all in this. We're not in a sprint. It's not a sprint from birth to death for Ron or for Ari. We're actually in a very, very, very long uh, relay race. And what we are passing on, our morals, our values, our ways of being, that's the baton. And it's not about Ari making it across the finish line. It's about making sure the baton gets passed so that those who are born and come after me, and by the way, long path isn't just for people who have kids. It's anyone of any generation who wants to see better tomorrows, that if I think about the actions that I take today, make that quote unquote baton better, that is going to be how I actually exist forever, right? So when I think about the way I was raised, my father's story, my mother's story, I just had dinner you know, with, with my children 
I told them stories about my parents, things about how they dealt with, with, with struggles in life. My parents, although they are they have both kind of biologically passed away, in many ways, they are living forever through those stories and through those actions that I pass on to my children. Hopefully one day they will pass on to their children. And so the roadblock, again, is our own mortality. And it's important for us to realize, and we talked about this a little bit earlier, that we're in a very specific uh, moment in time humanity. We're kind of in this place, what I call in the book, the intertidal. We're kind of in between what was and what will be. So the kind of the stories and the narratives and the ways Ari and Ron kind of organize our lives over the past couple of hundred years in this very kind of hyper-rational, scientific way of being. While amazing, we're starting to see that people have less and less trust in those institutions. And so in this kind of intertidal, this you know interregnum between what was and what will be, short-termism gets amped up because all of a sudden, to be honest, Ron, we start kind of freaking out and saying, no one has the answers. I don't trust anyone. I'm just going to do what's in my own best interest right now. That is why I wrote the book now in 2022, because what I saw, and this gets to your earlier point, the things that we have to do at an individual level and at a societal level need to happen right now if we want to see those kind of long-term flourishing futures uh, over the next several hundred, if not several thousand years. Again, this is so fascinating. And uh, But I'm wondering if, when, what you're saying really takes hold and becomes a, a dominant way of thinking. Do you see it as uh, something that will be taught in school or that it's a kind of a philosophy that gets evolves in families or what, uh, how not, How does it manifest? How does it, what does it look like, right? As it's, it's, a, it's a great question. So look, the book has only been out for a couple of weeks, but the emails that we're getting from folks are, it's, it's fascinating. I, I just got an email, you know, I'll tell you about the three emails I got in the past 24 hours. One was from the CEO of a very large company who said, I just read this book, Long Path, Becoming, you know, the Great Ancestors, Our Future Needs. And it's making me rethink what business are we in, right? Are we just making these widgets so I can meet my quarterly numbers? Or are we part of something much, much bigger? And how should we be thinking about our company and our and our and our stakeholders? And our stakeholders aren't just our workers and the people who own stocks and our company is a publicly traded company, the CEO, but also future generations and how we make, I'm not saying who they are, but how we make our widgets, what we put into the environment, that is both for people now, but some of the chemicals we use are going to last hundreds, if not thousands of years. We have to think differently. So that's that's the CEO reading Long Path. Then I got an email from a parent who said, wow, this is really helping me rethink how I'm parenting. All these things that I thought were very serious and important, like my kid, my third grader's test score in, you know, in math that I was up all night about because, oh my gosh, if they don't get good math test scores in third grade, they're not going to get into the right college. They're not going to find the right life partner. And they're not going to get the right house. Like I, they realize how silly that is in the much grander scheme of things. So that was, I got that, I got that from a parent. Then I got the book, uh, then I got an email from someone who is in the kind of, I, they didn't say, but from, from the reading of this, they were probably like in their 60s, 70s, maybe even 80s. And they were saying, you know, I didn't realize until I read this book that I am and want to be a futurist also. And what they read in the book, which was which is so, they, they went right to it. They totally got it. To be a futurist now doesn't mean it's someone like 
how I talked about in the beginning of our conversation, who kind of can say, well, these are the different ways things can happen. And here's what you have to do in these kind of corporate strategy meetings. To be a futurist now means to think of yourself as a potential great ancestor, as someone who can take action today that will reverberate over the long term to actually, this is one of your earlier questions, actually start deciding what is the good future that I want to see happen in the world. And then they they went on to kind of talk about how they are with their grandkids and the stories they're telling them and realizing that the way they are going to flourish as an individual today is by being a better, more empathetic person to their grandchildren and their children because they realize that goes off into the future past them. So this person got right to the core of the book. They realize that it's about more than just them. And they realize that is what makes them a kind of a, a futurist long pather. And so to answer your question, look, I've gotten I've gotten emails from, from rabbis and priests and pastors and imams and saying, this is great. I'm going to use this in my sermons and how I do what I'm doing in my kind of my religious activity. Because the idea behind long path, that this applied mindset for navigating this moment we're in, is how do you become a better human, not just for yourself, so it's not just self-help, but how do you become a better human both for yourself and in such a way that this has a knock-on effect over the next several dozen, if not more, kind of generations. And so that's what I want to see this kind of impact is when people start kind of, yeah, it'd be nice if they voted a certain way and they bought their electric cars and they did certain things. But if people started realizing the actions they take, as small as they may be, be it how they greet someone, but how, how they deal with their inner voice that's always kind of telling them to be a better person and realizing, well, that comes from somewhere and it didn't, it wasn't just born a benevolent thing. Like that's how I know uh, long path will start changing how people think about themselves and their impact both into in, in for today and for the far futures. Okay. I'm sold. Where do I get the book? All right. So long path becoming the great ancestor of future needs obviously uh, is going to be available on Amazon, but really it's anywhere books are sold. So if we think about Again, to, to, you know, to your point, Ron, like what, what does that look like? What does it mean to have a, an impact? It means, yes, you can buy the book online. You can also buy it at your local bookstore, right? Like it's something that seems so small, but if you can walk or ride down to the local bookstore and kind of keep those tax dollars and those folks in business buy you, that'd be great. But look, no judgment, buy wherever you want. You can buy it as a Kindle. You can get the audio book on Audible. And if you want to learn more about Longpath and everything that we're doing, it's very simple. You go to longpath.org.org. Okay. And that's where they're going to, is is it a website where you keep things up? Yeah, you you can go go to longpath.org and and learn more about kind of what we're doing. You can sign up, obviously you can sign up for our newsletter. You can follow on Instagram, uh, on Twitter, and you can also sign up for what we call Long Path Gather. So we were starting to do these before COVID, and we're going to start them back up again very soon. It's actually where people who want to kind of read the book and start practicing this in a kind of a group setting, almost like a book club. And we're going to be doing these in different cities around the country, hopefully around the world. You can sign up for those at the longpath.org website as well. That's wonderful. And I can't imagine people listening to this podcast not you know, going out and getting the book and going to the website and all that. I do think uh, I appreciate you you're giving that word about bookstores because while they're still around, it's a totally different experience than than ordering it uh, 
you know, so if, if you've got a chance to, to go down there, I mean, it's one of the things that uh, hopefully there will be bookstores in the future, too. But uh, I don't know. I, look, I'd like to think that, look, the, the in in the book, it's, it's a book, right? But it, there's also kind of a workbook component to it. So every chapter and sometimes twice, there are a set of questions and kind of exercises that the reader can kind of go through to help them kind of develop their their long path sensibility, their long path mindset. And you you can you can obviously do those if you order the book online. That's great. But when you go to the local bookstore and kind of hold it in your hand, there's something very different about it before before mm-hmm. you before you purchase it. But again, no, no judgment. Um, and if, look, and if any, you can also contact me through the website if you read the book and you're like, oh, I have some questions through the website. You can contact and I. I, I'm actually getting back to folks. There's a lot of folks, but I will get back to you. Uh, so I hope I hope those who decide to get the book and read the book, if they feel so inclined, if they have questions, they can reach out to me through the website. Okay, that's terrific. You've been so generous with your time and your information. I do have one final question that I have to ask. I, I'm obviously much older than you, but uh, if I wanted to major in futurism in college, I couldn't find those kind of courses. How does somebody become a futurist? I mean, look, it's look. There, there is the association of professional futurists. You can kind of go online, and, and, and you know, you have to do certain kind of not. You don't take tests, but you have to show that you're, you're actively actively doing this with organizations. But there are a series of books. Obviously, I think the, the kind of the big one in this space is called "The Art of the Long View" by Peter Schwartz. It came out 20, 30 years ago. But look, to, to be a futurist now, if you want to kind of become a professor, if, if you're, let's say, talking to someone getting ready to go to college, it's about taking courses in history, psychology, political science. You kind of start there. And now, it, to be honest, at most business schools, you can take courses on what they call scenario planning and kind of futures development. And there are, Ron, several PhD programs uh, in, in Texas and University of Hawaii. You can get a PhD in becoming a futurist. So it is it is a recognized full-time uh, privilege and an amazing space to kind of be in as someone who's trying to do something good in the world. If anyone's interested in who's listening and you want more information, just reach out to me through the website. Okay. That's terrific. Notion of uh, getting a PhD in futurism in Hawaii is uh, sort of appealing, I'll tell you. Uh, but this has been so informative. Uh, again, you've been so generous with your ideas, your time, and so on. And uh, it's just been a, a real delight having you. I could ask a million more questions, but is there anything that I should have asked you but didn't at the time we had? No, Ron, I'll, I'll be honest. You, you, uh, you know, I've been doing this for a while since the book came out a couple of weeks ago. I loved your questions. You kind of, you kind of hit everything. Um, I think it, it's important, though, if, if, if you get the book and you read the book, really do the exercises because there's one way you can do the book and you kind of get to the exercise and kind of skip over and say, well, that's not for me. I don't want to do that. I don't want to think about my past. I don't do the, that. Think of the exercises as how you actually kind of start to get the shift that you need. It's like the difference between doing and not doing the exercises, like kind of going to yoga class and just watching it versus actually getting on the mat. So just do the exercises. Uh, I promise you, they're all kind of research backed. We have, a, we have a great team, research team at Long Path Labs. It's all very kind of common sense stuff. So hopefully when, when you get the book, you will do the exercises and you'll see 
that the way you kind of start to see yourself in the world, the, the way you view issues from the very small to the very large will shift. And those exercises will help you do that even more so. Okay, wonderful. Well, we will have all the book information, the contact information in the show notes. This has been a really outstanding program. I learned so much and I know that the listeners did too. And we look forward to hearing more from you because we have to. It's, mm-hmm. it's the future. That's what and, I'm here for. Thank you for having me, Ron. Well, it's been been a total pleasure. And I think my listeners now know why your TED Talk got 10 times more listeners than mine did, even though I thought <laughs> pretty well. Anyway, this brings to a close an exciting episode of Rejuvenating with Dr. Ron Kaiser. Our guest, Ari Wallach, has educated, entertained, uh, clarified some things for us, and hopefully changed some lives in the way that we lead our lives in uh, and truly become better versions of ourselves. And please tell your friends about the podcast and download, rate, review the podcast, and be back next week for another really interesting guest, although I don't know whether we can reach the bar that we did today, but it's, I promise you it'll be somebody good. In the meantime, please visit the Mental Health Gym website. Please stay safe, stay positive, and be back next time. Take care. Real pleasure. Dr. Ron Kaiser with Ari Wallach signing off.